clubs. Um, and I have miraculously managed to read both of the books, which might be a first. I often turn up without having read any, but I've managed to, to read both of them. Uh, now, if you don't know how a book club works, um, you can probably work it out. So you read a book, and then you meet with some people, uh, and you talk about the book. Um, and so on Tuesday, I met with um, a few guys, and we were talking about a book called The Heart of Darkness. Now, I'd never read it before, um, and it was like, pretty heavy going. It was like, I mean, you kind of get what you pay for. If you read a book called Heart of Darkness, you're probably not expecting a super light read. And it definitely isn't that. It took some getting through. Um, but it was only 78 pages. Uh, and so that is like definitely in its favor. Uh, and so, so I, I read this book. And, and as I was reading it, I was trying to work out what is it actually about? Like, what, what is this book, The Heart of Darkness, about? If you haven't read it, you're probably there thinking, well, it's obvious what it's about. It's about this. But as I was reading it, I was like, what is the, the heart of darkness that he's referring to? And it seemed as the story went on that um, it's about some, some guys who, during colonial, um, kind of during the process of colonization, travel up uh, a river in the Congo. And, and it's about kind of all the stuff that goes on there. And it seems like this, the heart of dark, darkness is both the place, this kind of middle of Africa where they feel kind of detached from the rest of the world, but it's also something about the, the hearts of human beings, about the kind of darkness that lives within each human being. But as, as you were kind of reading it, I found myself wondering, what actually is it? Like, what is it that he's suggesting is the heart of the darkness inside? Is it, is it greed? There's a lot in the book about greed, about this insatiable desire to basically just plunder Africa and steal all its wealth for, for the British Empire. Is it greed? Is that the heart of darkness? Or is it, is it more about apathy? Is it a lack, of, a lack of caring about anything? Is it just the loss of any sense of meaning? Is it a lack of moral compass? As, as they find themselves in the middle of Africa, kind of trying to battle around with kind of a whole new way of living uh, with no one really to enforce any law. Is it that that's the heart of darkness? This kind of lack of moral compass, this lack of anything to control our behaviour. And so I, I found myself reading this and kind of wondering like what was going on. But one of the great things about a book club is that as you go and chat about it, some ideas start to become a bit clear. So you get to hear other people's thoughts about it. So other people are going, well, I read it, and I thought it was saying this thing. And you go, oh, I never really thought of that. And also, in the process of you talking about it, you start to realise what it was you actually thought. So until you start talking about it, it's all just this jumbled mess in your mind of, like, portentous thoughts. But as you start talking about it, you start to realise, oh, actually, I think this was quite important in it, or this was quite important in it. You see, that's, that's how often stories work. We, we read them, we think about them, we chat about them, and as we do that, we, we start to kind of mull around and think about what, what the meaning is. And that's why stories can be so powerful. You know, stories are powerful because it, 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 there's something in the kind of enigmatic meaning of them, in, in the need to kind of hear the story, but then go, but actually what's it saying that allows it to connect with us, that allows us to kind of process it and think about it in, in different ways. So, we come to Matthew 20, and we have, we have Jesus telling a story. Just imagine that you are, I don't know, a first century Jew, and you hear that there's this guy, he's going he's gonna to come around, he's going to be teaching. Famous, famous rabbi, famous teacher. You've heard amazing things about him. You've heard that his teaching has kind of uh, changed, is starting to draw big crowds, that people are gathering towards him, that he's this incredible speaker. 
You've heard that he's done incredible things. You've heard like people have gone and said that he's been doing healings and all kinds of miracles. You're like, this guy seems a bit too good to be true. And you just think, I know, I'm going to go check him out. So, so you, you kind of get up, you have your breakfast, you and you, maybe you take your family with you, you head out and you go out and you go like, right, we're going to go and see this Jesus guy. We're going to go and hear him, hear what he's got to say. And so you rock, rock up, wait expectantly, wonder, wondering what is he going to say? Like, what's this teacher going to be about? What's he going to do? And he stands up. And he starts telling you a story. And the story is the story that you've just heard. It goes a bit like this. There's, there's a guy and he owns a vineyard. And he, he runs this vineyard and he needs people to, to work in it. So he goes out and he goes out to the marketplace, to the place where people hang around looking for work. I've, in my mind, I've got that kind of, you know, like you get in um, The Wire or like other like shipworking type films where you've got like this group of people just waiting and hoping they get picked up for work that day and then some of them get left behind, some of them don't. I've got that kind of vision in my mind. You've got this group of people doing the market square hoping that there's going to be some work for them. And this guy comes along and says, I'm looking for some people to work in my vineyard. So everyone's like, yeah, I'd love, I, I want a day's work. Be great, get some money. So they're all there and he goes, yeah, you guys, you, you, you come work for us. So they, they come and they start, they start working for him in the vineyard. And he agrees that he's going to pay them a day's wages for a day's work. That's what a denarius is, just a day's wage. So he's going to give them a day's pay for a day's work. And so, so far, the story is so ordinary. I mean, there's like actually nothing to it. The guy, he needs some work doing, so he agrees to pay someone to do the work. Great. But then what happens is he goes back to the marketplace at at 9 o'clock in the morning. Which, I've got to be honest, as I read it, it made me think, oh, I wonder what time they started. Seems like an early start. Um, so they obviously started before nine, so he goes back at nine o'clock in the morning, uh, and he picks, he goes and says to you guys, right, I want you guys, you guys, can you come work for me as well? So they come, and they, they come and work for him. And then he goes back at midday, and he looks around, there's still some people hanging around the marketplace, he's like, yep, yeah, you guys, you can work for me as well, so he pulls them in. He goes back at three o'clock, still some people there, so he says, you guys, do you want to come and work? So they're like, yep, yeah, we want to come and work. Five o'clock, he goes back, which then made me ask the question, oh, I wonder what time they finished. Seems like a long day is all I'm saying, it started before nine, and it finished after five. So, so, they, so he goes at five o'clock, and he says, you guys, do you want to come and work for me as well? Yep, yeah, we want to come for work for you as well. So now he's got this whole group of people who've all worked for him for like a, a range of times, anywhere between one hour and more than an hour. Uh, and so, so you've, got, you've got this kind of group of people who work there. And now it comes to pay time. So he pulls the workers towards and he starts paying them. And he starts with the guys who he only hired an hour before they finished at five o'clock. So he pulls them in and he gives them a denarius, a day's, a day's wage for an hour's work. Uh, and then he brings in the next people, the people who started at three o'clock. He gives them a denarius as well. Day's, day's pay for three hours' work. Does the same with the guys who started at 12 o'clock. Same with the guys who started at 9 o'clock. And finally, you get to the people who started right at the start of the day. They turned up, they've worked all day. They've worked a day, they expect a day's pay. But then now they don't expect a day's pay. Because they're like, well, wait a minute, all these other guys got a day's pay and they didn't work a day. So I'm surely going to get more than that. So they go turn up and the guy gives them the money and they're like, okay, here's the money. And they go, wait a minute, that's how come we got paid? The same as all these other guys. That, that guy over there, he only worked an hour and he got the same as me. And I've worked all day and he only worked the best part as well. He worked when like the sun was going down. It was cool. I worked in the middle of the day when the sun was beating down all day and I got a day's, I got a denarius and he's worked an hour and he gets a denarius. How is this fair? So they start grumbling against the guy who owns the vineyard. And the guy who owns the vineyard says, what's the problem? Like you agreed to do a day's work for a day's pay. And that's what's happening. So what's your problem? 
Like, what does it matter to you if I choose to pay these other guys something different? Like, like, why does that matter? Like, what's it to you? You agreed to do work for a pay. You've worked that amount of time. You've got that amount of money. What's the problem? Can't I do what I want with my money? So Jesus tells this story. And then, at the end, he says this phrase. So the last will be first, and the first last. And then, he metaphorically drops the mic and walks off. Like, that's it. Like, no explanation. Like, no, like, oh, so from this, I think you should learn this, this, and this. No, it's like, like, that's it. That's all you get. There's no explanation of this. That's the end of this section in Matthew. He doesn't follow it up with anything else. The next part, he's in a different bit. He's on his way to Jerusalem. That's it. He stands up. He tells the story. He walks off. Imagine if you've gone to hear this guy teaching. He stands up and he tells the story. And then he leaves. You go home. You're taking your family with you. You go home. Imagine the conversation over the meal table. I wonder, I wonder if you'd start doing what I was doing a bit with Heart of Darkness, going, I wonder what it meant. <laughs> I wonder what he was getting at. Uh, and you can imagine around the dinner table, and going, well, I think he was saying something about this, and someone else going, I think he was saying something about this. Uh, and you can imagine them kind of chining it over, trying to work out, like, what was this great teacher saying with this slightly odd story that you've just heard. But as the discussion would raged around the meal table, as you were chatting about it, my guess is that one phrase would never have been too far from your lips and definitely not too far from your mind. And it would have been, but wait a minute, it wasn't fair, was it? Like, however much I think about it, I've spent a lot of this week thinking about it as I've been getting ready for this. However much you think about it, you just keep coming back to that idea. But it wasn't fair, was it? Like, I get it. Like, he can do what he wants with his money. I get that. But it's kind of not fair. <laughs> like, someone's worked an hour. Someone else has worked 10 hours plus. They get the same money. Like, in, in our country, we talk a lot about, you know, the same pay for the same work. Like, it's a big thing people talk about all the time. You know, if the same, if the same kind of work is being done by two different people, they should get the same amount of money for it. Well, this isn't that, is it? You'd chat about it. You'd acknowledge that the man can do what he wants. But, if I'm honest, my guess is that as you chatted about it over the meal table, you'd find it hard to get over the fact that someone got a day's pay for one hour work and someone else had to work the whole day for it. Now, I want to be careful this afternoon as we think about this, that I don't over-explain it. Because Jesus doesn't. In some ways, the power of the story is in you guys wrestling with it. It's in all of us going, well, wait a minute, if this makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable, why was Jesus trying to make people feel a little bit uncomfortable about this? What is it that Jesus was trying to do with this story? In some ways, the real power of this story is found in the way it makes you feel. It's found in the fact that you feel a bit uncomfortable about it. That you kind of get, you think you get what Jesus is getting at, but then as soon as you get there, you're like, oh, I'm, but am I actually quite sure? But I do want to say a few things. The first thing I want to say is, this is not a parable about employment law. Okay, let's just get that out of the way. Okay, Jesus isn't trying to teach how employers should, should treat their employees. Okay, this, this is not what that is about. 
So if you start going down that rabbit hole of, well, that wouldn't be a fair workplace. No, it wouldn't. And nor is it meant to be. Because Jesus isn't interested in that. That's not what he's teaching about. He's not trying to teach you about how employment should work. The idea that same people get paid the same money for the same work, that's a good idea. Let's stick to that. Okay, so, so that, that's fine. So he's not trying to teach about employment law here. No, he, he's clear what he's trying to teach about. He says at the start, he's trying to teach about the kingdom of heaven. He's trying to teach us something about the kingdom of heaven. God's kingdom. Now, now, what is the kingdom of heaven? Well, the kingdom of heaven is the place where God rules perfectly. It's the place where God is king, as he should be. In, in that kingdom, there is no evil at all. There is no injustice. Everybody is treated fairly. There is no exploitation or manipulation. There is no abuse. There is no unkindness. There is nothing that is untrue. There is no suffering, no pain, nothing which is broken, no insecurity, no broken relationships. That's the kingdom of God. That's the kingdom of heaven. That's what it looks like. That's God's kingdom. Now, if that's God's kingdom, if God's kingdom is a place where there is none of that stuff, no evil, nothing that's untrue, nothing that's unkind, all of us are excluded. Every single one of us. None of us can be there. Because as soon as we set foot in that place, that kingdom becomes a place that has something that's not true in it. Something that is not kind in it. Something that is manipulative. As soon as we set foot in it. Each one of us has disqualified ourselves from that kingdom. Our unkindness, our deceit, our manipulation of others, our disregard for God, our unwillingness to live under his rule, our brokenness and pain and suffering we cause others, all mean that we are on the outside of that kingdom looking in at it. All of us are excluded. But yet, Jesus doesn't seem to say that. Jesus talks about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven a lot. But his message isn't, oh, by the way, you can't really get into it. That's not what he does. In fact, he repeatedly says the opposite. He repeatedly says the kingdom of God is near. And he repeatedly calls on people to enter it, to go into this kingdom, to become a part of God's kingdom, God's perfect world. His message was that the kingdom of heaven was something that you and I could be a part of. That everyone could be a part of. We didn't have to be excluded. We were invited to be a part of it. Now, now how could that be possible? How can it be possible that on the one hand you can have a perfect kingdom, but on the other hand you can have imperfect people who are able to go into it? How can you have that without breaking it? Well, God, in his great generosity was going to come to the world as one of us. He was going to take the punishment our evil deserved. He was going to take the consequences of our rejection of God and he was going to offer us forgiveness and a new life. This was God's great plan. And he's going to achieve it through the work of Jesus. So when Jesus came and said, the kingdom of heaven is near and that you can enter it, he was saying that because he was going to make that possible. He was going to make a way for all of our evils to be forgiven. For us to have new hearts so that we could be a part of that kingdom without ruining it. Now, now that, that work that God was going to do of forgiving us and making us ready for his perfect kingdom, 
That's the word. That's what we mean when we use the word grace. So we are called Grace Church Hartlepool because grace is a big idea for us, and that's what we mean when we say grace. Grace is that moment where God gives us that great gift of forgiveness, a new heart, and a welcome into His kingdom, not as something that we earn but it's something that he generously gives us. That's what we mean when we talk about grace. That's what grace is. That's the heart of Christianity. If you're, if you're here today and you think Christianity is about something other than that, you've missed the heart of it. The centrepiece of Christianity is not the stuff that we do. It's the generosity of God towards us in the person of Jesus. But, if grace is at the heart of Christianity, if grace is at the heart of the message that Jesus was going to teach, this is what I think Jesus is getting at here. There is nothing fair about grace. Nothing fair about it. It's not fair that Jesus had to die so that we could live. It's not fair that we can be accepted into this kingdom when we have disqualified ourselves. It's not fair that God forgives us. There's nothing fair about forgiveness. It's not fair that someone else deals with the consequences of our sin. None of that is fair. But that is the gospel. That is the good news of what Jesus has done. That's the good news that Jesus is going to spend his life telling you about and telling everyone about and living out. That is the good news that Jesus is going to die to make a reality. You see, it's not fair. And that, I think, lies at the heart of the point Jesus is making in the story. If you want to be a part of the kingdom of God, if you want to be welcomed into the world that he is creating, into the, his family, then you are going to get, need to get over your need for fairness. Fairness would leave every single one of us outside of the kingdom. Fairness would leave all of us unforgiven and out of relationship with God. Ultimately, we cannot rely on fairness. We have to rely on generosity. Grace is by definition unfair. Grace is when God gives us something that we don't deserve and that we haven't earned. I mean, that's literally what the word means. It's not fair. Grace is when God says, forgiveness is available and new life is available. Knowing me is available. Being part of my kingdom is available. And nothing you've done can earn it and nothing you've done can disqualify you from it. That's the gospel. It's never going to be fair. And if you're anything like me, you should be so thankful that it's not fair. You don't need fairness. You need generosity. Well, I need too. But here's the problem I think we face as Christians. If you're here today and you're a Christian and you're somebody who knows Jesus, has come to kind of accept that, has accepted that great gift of what he's done on your behalf, if that's you, I think there's a problem that sometimes happens in our minds. And it goes a bit like this. We hear the gospel. Get blown away by the generosity of God. 
just amazed. How could a God love us like that? How could he accept us despite everything we've done? And we hear that and we're wowed by it and we love it. That offer of free forgiveness, new life. And once we get over our pride and independence, we just see it as the most wonderful thing. But then, we hear God say, now, come work for me. Because that's what God does say. You know, he says it to his disciples, he says, I'm going to make you fishers of men. I'm going to give you a job to do. We hear God telling us of his great plan to reconcile the whole world to himself. And we hear him saying, so get on board. You know, get involved. My great plan for the world, I'm going to reconcile everything to, to me. So you get, get involved in that work. You know, get involved, do something. Be part of that work that I'm doing here. And so we get on board and we start working as Christians. You know, we've, we've experienced God's great gift to us. We're, we're wowed by the great work that he's doing. And we're like, yes, I want to get on board. So we get on board and we start working. For him. We start telling people about Jesus, pleading with other people to come to know him. We start caring for our world, looking to rule over his creation well, looking to mend brokenness, provide comfort in the midst of pain. We pour ourselves out to meet and the needs of God's people, to provide for them physically and emotionally and spiritually. In short, we become part of God's team doing God's work. Because that's what he calls us to. And that is right and it's good. That is what should happen when we come to know Jesus and we experience his new life. But it can lead to a problem. This is a problem it can lead to. It can lead to us viewing ourselves differently. No longer do we view ourselves primarily as recipients of a gift. We start viewing ourselves as workers who deserve payment. You see, at the start, we were kind of blown away by the generosity. We recognised there was nothing we could do to earn it. We were just thankful for the generosity of God, for his great gift towards us. But then, once we get involved in his work, now we start thinking, well, now I'm working for him. So what's the payoff? And what do I get for that work? And I just want to suggest that there's a few ways we can see this happening in our life. These are not the only ways. But I'm going to just give you a few. And I just want you to think about this this afternoon. Think about whether these are things that you find creeping into your life as a Christian. Sometimes, trying to view yourself as a worker who deserves pay, rather than someone who receives a gift, can look a bit like it does in this parable. It can look like comparison with others. We look at other people and we begrudge what they have. We feel like, I'm working hard for God. You know, I'm doing my bit. Trying as hard as I can. You know, as far as I can see, when God calls me to do something, I'm doing it. I'm trying to be obedient. I'm trying to do what he tells me to do. And you look at your life and you go, well, wait a minute, I'm doing all this stuff for God. And my life feels difficult. You know, money's tight. Relationships are hard. My mental health's not great. And then you look at someone else and they don't seem to be doing anything for God. They don't seem to care about him. They don't seem to be working for him. You look at them and like, their life looks great. They've got loads of money. They've got an easy life. Everybody likes them. They've got no relationship problems. How come they get to sail through life without a care in the world when I have to struggle, despite the fact I'm working hard for God, I'm doing what he calls me to do? And we find ourselves asking the question, wait a minute, God, how's that fair? How is it fair that I am doing this stuff and my life's so hard and they're doing nothing and their life looks so easy? 
How come I work hard for you and my life feels rubbish? And those people don't seem to do anything and they have it so easy. And there, just like that, we've moved from a recipient of a gift to a worker who demands payment. This happens. We start comparing ourselves with others. We start looking at the work we're doing. We start going, wait a minute, I've worked harder and longer than those guys over there. But I'm not getting the same stuff. Sometimes it can look like comparison with others. Sometimes it can look like a lack of assurance. We look at our lives and we feel like, I'm just not doing very well. You know, maybe you look at your life and go, I've just disobeyed God in some area. I know what I should have done, I just haven't done it. I've willfully gone a different way. Or maybe it's nothing like that. But maybe you just look at yourself and just go, I know I haven't been doing the stuff that God calls me to do. I haven't been reading my Bible. I haven't been praying. You know, I've skipped life group. Uh, you know, whatever it is that you feel like you should have been doing. And you just think, ah, I'm not doing very well. And you find yourself thinking and worrying that God's not going to want you anymore. That you're not good enough for Jesus. That somehow you've disqualified yourself from the kingdom. And just like that, you've moved from a recipient of a gift to someone who thinks you need to earn what you get. Sometimes it can look like burnout. It can look like overwork. We think God must permanently be disappointed with us, so we just need to work a bit harder, try a bit more, do a bit more stuff. We push ourselves harder and harder trying to please him, and we get exhausted and burnt out because we're trying to work beyond our capacity. And again, we've forgotten that we are recipients of a gift, not workers called to earn God's favour. Sometimes you see it in conscious or subconscious bargaining with God. When have you ever done it? You know, the kind of thing where you say, look God, if I just do this, if I promise that, you know, I'll, I'll pray to you every day, or I'll, I'll never disobey you again, or, you know, the kind of crazy bargains that we try and make that we're definitely never going to be able to keep our side on. But, you know, we, we make these bargains with God. If I just do this, God, will you give me that thing? And sometimes it's as conscious as that. We make the bargain. But sometimes it's a bit more subconscious. This is what I think I find myself doing sometimes. There's something I want from God. Like I wanted to answer a prayer in a certain area. And I, I'm just about to pray it, and then I think, oh, but wait a minute, I haven't done very well this week. Like, I haven't actually prayed at all this week before this. So I better do some normal prayers before I do that prayer, just because I don't want him to think I just want stuff. So let me do like four days of like solid normal praying, you know, not just asking for stuff. And then I'll drop the big request, because I want to butter him up a bit first. Or, oh, well, I haven't really been reading my Bible, so let's, let's get a few solid days of Bible reading, and then I'll ask him for the thing. You see, it's not quite conscious bargaining, but it's the same subconscious process. I have to do my bit, and if I do it, then maybe God will pay me back in, in the way that I want. And just like that, we've switched from someone who's relying on God's generosity to someone who's trying to put God in their debt. But that just misunderstands the work that God calls you to do. You see, God does invite you into his work. He wants you to work for him. The Bible's not shy about that. If you read the Bible, you'll find all kinds of crazy words to describe what living for God looks like, including words like slaves and servants. Kind of pretty extreme, isn't it? Like God wants you to work for him. Don't get me wrong. But you've got to understand what the work is. The work God invites you into, that's part of his gift. 
That's part of his generosity towards you. Because his generosity towards you not only buys your forgiveness, your acceptance, your transformation, it also buys you a purpose and a mission. God in his goodness doesn't just forgive you and accept you and then say, but just try and keep out of my way while I get on with my work, will you? No, it says, I forgive you and I accept you. And why don't you get involved in what I'm doing? You can be involved in this. And I just want to be clear. I think every human being is desperate for that. Every human being is desperate for a sense of purpose, a a mission, something to be involved in, something to live for. We don't just want forgiveness and acceptance. We also want something to do. And God says, I give you something to do. This is what you've got to do. Be involved in my work. Be involved in my work of loving the creation I've made, of loving the people that have come into my world, of knowing me and making me known. You should work hard for God. You were created to work. And when you work for him, you will experience his goodness. But that experience of his goodness is not a reward for the work. It's because the work itself is rewarding. Completely different. I'm going to try and wrap it up here. At the end of uh, this uh, chapter, you see that this kind of theme carries on throughout it, people talking about kind of what they deserve and what they don't deserve. And Jesus says some incredible words about himself at that. He says that he didn't come to be served, but to serve. God God himself comes to earth, but he doesn't come to be served. He comes to serve other people. Why? Why did Jesus come as a servant? Why was Jesus so committed to serving his father? Why was he so committed to serving us? Was it because he felt he needed to earn the father's approval? Did he think, well, God won't like me? If I don't work hard? No, he already had the Father's approval. God had loved him. God the Father had loved him since before the world began and was going to love him into eternity ever. He didn't do it to earn the Father's approval. He did it because he loved his Father and he wanted to be involved in his Father's work of rescuing the creation that he'd made. He did it because he loved us. He longed for us to come into his family. So you see, the crucial question that this leaves us with is, is that question of, are you willing to be served by Jesus? That's the question that actually matters. The question isn't, are you willing to work for him? Are you willing to serve him? The question is, are you willing to be served by him? And it's a genuine question. Because plenty of us aren't. Plenty of us don't want to be served by anyone. We want to earn it. I want to do my own stuff. I want to feel like I've got there by myself. Are you willing for Jesus to earn your forgiveness, for him to earn your acceptance, for him to earn your freedom? I'm going to leave you with that question. Because I think this parable is really leaving us 
with that issue of, to what extent do you think of yourself as a worker who deserves certain things versus someone who's completely dependent on the generosity of the, of the owner? And I want to leave you with that question. I want to tell you a way that you can answer it. One of the ways that Christians have answered that question for 2,000 years is through communion. Communion is something Christians have done that Jesus called us to do. And it's a moment where we actively say, I am going to accept what Jesus has done for me. That's what we're doing at communion. We take, a, we take a piece of bread and we eat it. And we remember that the thing we're accepting that Jesus did for us was him going to that cross for us. It wasn't that he just worked that extra long day for us. He went and he died for us. He suffered torture and pain and judgment for us. And as you walk up to the front, which is where we do it here, and as you take the bread and eat it, as you take the wine, uh, which is actually grape juice, in case you're interested, um, and drink it, you are there saying, I accept what you've done for me, and I accept that gift. I accept your service of me. So, so let me encourage you. I'm going to give us a, a time of quiet now. Uh, and if that's you, if you're somebody who goes, yeah, I want to accept that gift. I don't think I need to earn what Jesus has done for me. I just want to accept what he's given me freely. Let me encourage you. Come to the front, take a piece of bread, take a little uh, cup of grape juice, eat and drink, and accept that gift that is offered to each of you. If this is the first time you've accepted that, great. Come and do that and accept it here. If this is the 50th time you've done that, great. If this is the 500th, just keep doing it. And it's so easy to move away from that. To move to a place where we think it's about what we've done. And at communion we remind ourselves and we remind each other. This is never about what we've done. It's never about what you've earned. It's about what Christ has done for us. So, let me give you a few minutes to process, to think through that. And whenever you're ready, uh, come to the front uh, if that's you. If that's not you, stay, stay in your seat. Stay sat there. No embarrassment. Um, just stay there, and then uh, we'll sing at the end of this, and that'll be us done for this afternoon. So I'll give you a few minutes of quiet for that.